welcome to Shattered Lines, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And uh, yes, indeed, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, wherever you may be listening to this live or on the archives, um, I welcome you to today's show. Um, It is a pleasure to um, have a uh, repeat guest who I haven't had on in at least a couple of years. Um, But before we bring her on, excuse me, um, uh, we're we're talking with Karen Bowden today, uh, who is an author, an advocate for missing persons, uh, for children, and um, she's a mother, a grandmother, a wife, um, has many permutations, uh, has um, many, um, many uh, variations in her uh, resume with respect to what she does. She's a presenter, a lecturer to law enforcement, and we are going to hear about her second book, a sequel to the first book that deals with her uh, sister who went missing many years ago. But before I bring Karen on, I want to... Uh, say hello to the czar of social media marketing in the Carolinas, my capable PR manager and my good friend, uh, Delilah Jones. Hi, Delilah. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, and good morning, Karen. Um, this is another really, really well-informed show. I think listeners are going to be you know, very, very informed with the things that Karen has to tell. Um, you know, in my opinion, Karen is another one of the sur- survivors of a, of a crime that, you know, instead of going inside and and although I'm, I know you've grieved and still grieve, but you've actually done a lot of very, very positive things for other people. And uh, I commend you for all that you've done. And thank you. Yes, thank you. Well, good morning, Karen, and welcome to Shattered Lives Radio once again. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, good, and I know the time zone is a bit early there, so make sure you uh, partake of your coffee. And um, let's see, for the benefit of our audience, who may be um, varied in many people, um, it, uh, Karen, Karen and I, and, and Delilah, first met Karen, I believe, at a Q Center conference a few years ago, and we were treated to her her gifts as a presenter, as an author, and she has become a friend of ours, and we've tried to keep in touch over those years as best we can because I believe we have um, uh, at least a, a few major things in common, and we have that common thread. Um, being a survivor, not a victim, and we've lost someone very dear to us in our family, and that binds us. Um, and so, you know, with that as a backdrop, um, Karen, uh, want to maybe begin by asking you, as as a person and as an author, and what you've done over these many years, of which it will be 
over 40, I believe, since um, since Kathy Kathy uh, went missing and was murdered and brutally raped and just a horrific crime. How um, how would you define yourself differently today as compared to several years ago when you started your journey with how you were um, becoming an author and to, to tell Kathy's story? Uh, you are a different person in many ways, but can you give us a little bit of that insight? Sure. I I think um, there was a time that I decided to do something positive with what happened, and I think with each individual, that time period is different, and it has been over 40 years uh, since Kathy went missing and was murdered, and it took a long time for me to approach the idea of uh, writing a book. And um, But once I did that, and uh, because way back in 1971 when she was murdered, it was a whole different time back then, and people didn't talk about things, and we were told not to talk about it between our other siblings and family members or, or even um, outside of the family. And so I grew up in a an era where you were not to talk about what happened to you. And so for years and years, a lot of that I kept stuffed inside. And when you do that, eventually it's going to come out some way. And I guess I decided to have it come out in a positive way and try to to search to, to, to do that. And by writing, taking the courage to write the first book, um, that was the beginning. And I think when you take that first step and you start uh, in a positive direction to try to make a difference and change in, in other people's lives that may be going through it at now or in the future, um, that's when you can start to heal. That's, I know that's when I started to heal. Um, and uh, it really made a difference for me. And then once that door was open it was amazing it just all these other doors kept opening you know and I just kept taking a step forward and every step forward opened another door and so when I was done the first book um, you know decided to do the sequel and a lot of people would say well why did you decide to do the sequel why didn't you put it all in one book well I couldn't because we were filming with 2020 we were doing a vigil. My sisters and I were fighting for the cold case unit in New Hampshire. There were a lot of things that were going on that I couldn't put in that book because I was on a time schedule to finish the first book. So I decided, well, in doing the sequel, I thought, well, let me do a little research um, for the second book and let me do a few interviews and let me see if I can find out anything new. And this is what I'm talking about with the doors opening. By the time I was done, I did over 50 interviews for the sequel, and it took six years of research and writing. Um, and that was what, and that's what the development was: is a child is missing, um, searching for justice. So um, it was just one door kept opening up to another door, and then, and then using all of that. I was able to get into uh, universities and speak to criminal justice students um, and give them a very powerful PowerPoint presentation 
on what it's like to go through that um, all those years and how murder tends to follow a family for the rest of their lives because it's not something that just stops and you don't think about um, or, you know, uh, law enforcement approaches you again and says the case has been reactivated and then there's trials and there's, you know, retrials and, you know, just it just seems to follow you forever. And I just feel that if you can't find something positive with with that, then it can consume you. And, um, you know, that was the decision that, that I was able to make. And it was not an easy decision. It's not an easy road. But I think the benefits of speaking to law enforcement officers, I do the same presentation to them and um, really hit home on, on a personal level where lots of times they don't get that teaching when they're at the academy or in a training session for homicides. Um, they don't get that kind of training, someone that can give them a very personal view of what a family and what they are going through. And, um, Absolutely. It's, That's I, so needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think it, it does make a, a difference. I've had so many in law enforcement that have come up to me and told me that their views have been changed, you know, after listening uh, to the presentation. And one of the most powerful things that was said to me was a from a supervisor from the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigations. Um, he came up to me and said that uh, when he read in the first book about how police officers came into my room that I shared with Kathy and destroyed everything doing their investigation, um, tearing things apart and taking things out of drawers and and then just leaving everything that way. And when I walked into the room, it just seemed like destruction for me. And to me, that's all I had left of her, and they destroyed it. And so he said when he read that, um, it really affected him because he had done that before and didn't think anything of it because that was his job. And he said that now he instructs um, his officers when they go in and they're investigating that they are to leave the room exactly the way that they found it. Wow, that's pretty powerful that it. you would yeah. have been. And that's the that. kind of thing that is right. just, um, I think, Kathy's story and even though she's not here, I believe she's making a difference everywhere. Yeah. Well, it it sounds like, you know, you've done a lot, a lot of soul searching, a lot of analysis. And when I was, you know, trying to formulate some of my thoughts and questions, I'm thinking, well, why is, uh, why is a book as a new author to here, um, which we will talk about a little later, um, being a new author, why is a book a good vehicle for this kind of experience? Could it be part of Kathy's legacy for your family? Did it maybe mm-hmm. help you get closer to a resolution um, emotionally and with regard to the case when you, you did more and more research? Or uh, And, and I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that crime storytelling holds a particular fascination with readers more than anything else. I mean, I can write about some other things that are very interesting or things that have to do with disability because that is close to my heart or other things, and people just don't pay attention. They want Mm -hmm. this crime storytelling as a steady diet. So I'm just thinking that, you know, again, a book 
is is a is a multi purpose vehicle, I guess. You know, um, mm-hmm. can you give um, us for the benefit of those that have not um, necessarily heard some of the highlight should I say highlights the lowlights of what happened with regard to your sister, just as a backdrop uh, in terms of the first book, and then we can kind of move on from there. Yeah, the you know Kathy uh, left home and. Uh, went to a little store by our house and then was seen at uh, a high school um, not far from that store. And I was at a sports banquet that night and uh, I didn't see her and uh, somebody else did see her at the high school and that was the last time that she was seen. Um, She never came home and, uh, you know, we called police and, um, I think one of the things that affected me deeply as a kid was when we went down to talk to the police the following day that something was definitely very wrong. She wouldn't be out all night like that. Um, You know, uh, one of the law enforcement officers uh, laughed and said, you know, all kids run away all the time, don't worry. And that day, that day in the afternoon is when she was found. And she was found about three miles away from home and, she was uh, had been uh, put in the woods, uh, not too far off a off a road, and she was stripped of all her clothing except for her knee high socks. And um, she had been brutally beaten and raped, and they suspected maybe repeatedly raped because of the amount of semen that they found. And uh, and then um, you know, and then she was strangled and. Um, they said that was probably uh, what caused her death was a strangulation. And then when they dumped her, after they dumped her body, um, they ran uh, ran over her um, uh, several uh, it's times. It's so over overkill. I mean, and yeah, I mean, initially you they had a, a wasn't it a local sexual predator like a supposedly a good suspect or it, am I wrong about that? Yeah, they they actually had uh, numerous suspects back then, and I think that's what made uh, law enforcement's uh, job so difficult. Um, uh, but there were there were some uh, um, uh, suspects that were prominent, and and one of them is still living today and still lives in the area, and he is uh, the uh, the assistant attorney general. He's not uh, the assistant attorney general now. He's become a judge, but um, William Delker, um, you know, gave a news uh, uh, interview and newspaper interview and said that uh, this man is the last living uh, suspect in Kathy's case. Um, There was another man uh, that was a suspect, but he supposedly was in prison at the time for raping a girl in the area, and so they didn't really follow up on him. And then years later in 1983, when their case was reactivated, uh, that's when they kind of checked on this other man, um, uh, Duquette, and um, he's passed away now. But he, uh, uh, they checked on him again, and lo and behold, he was actually out of prison. He had gotten an early release, and he was out in, in the area at the time. And so... You know, I remember the police officer looking at me and said, you know, someone dropped the ball big time back in 1971 because they just took it for granted 
that he was in prison. And so, and then, you know, we dealt with, um, and I do talk about this in the books because it's been verified by law enforcement that we did have some corruption that was going on. There was the prime suspect's uh, friend of his that was on in law enforcement was leaking him information and he knew what was going on in the case, uh, you know, as, as the case was um, proceeding. And uh, so, we also had to um, deal with that as a family, and um, you know a lot of a lot of things. You know, if you go back, if you read the book and you look at it, um, there's so many things that were against us. You know, finding out what happened to her and uh, who did it, and you know, making an arrest. Um, it's just amazing, and a lot of the things that happened back then would probably never happen now. Um, you would know, this be described as like a uh, small New Hampshire, maybe area RFD kind of a town? Yeah, it was very, very small town, and and you you think about that and and stuff that goes on in the town. I mean, it was the type of place that you know, if you got in trouble before you got home, your mom knew, you know, um, because <laughs> yeah. somebody else told her, you know, right. and. Uh, so for a big thing like that to happen, a brutal, you know, murder like that to happen, um, there had to be numerous people that knew exactly what happened. But nobody was willing to come forward with um, substantial information um, to make an arrest. And it just seemed like one thing was against, you know, another thing would happen and it just wouldn't work out. And I remember in 1983, uh, a a lead investigator that was working on her case because it was reactivated in 83, um, you know, he told me, he said, we are this close to making an arrest. And um, so they were very close, but uh, he was told by the attorney general back then in 83 that they were not going to go to trial and spend $250,000 on a trial unless it was a slam dunk. They wanted to arrest somebody and make sure that there was a guarantee that this person was going to go to prison, and obviously there wasn't. And so they decided to hold off. And they I thought think it after was a winnable case, then, and they didn't yeah, they go forward. Yeah, they didn't right. want to go forward with it. But the thing is, you know, I was told by um, law enforcement that if they had gone forward with it in 1983 – that there were people that were protecting this guy and that that they would not have gone to prison for him. And if it was a matter of, of going to prison, they would have not. And so they would have turned on him and they would have given up more information. And, you and I think that convic- was a mistake, you know, oh. not to go forward in 83 because as the years went on, it just became more and more difficult because – now to try somebody on uh, overwhelming circumstantial evidence and with some evidence is very difficult. But in 1971 and uh-huh. 83, it was, um, you know, more uh, maybe happen, would happen back then. Um, mm-hmm. And I, th- I do believe more information would have come out. Um, well, what, what kinds of... Um... What kinds of in your in in um, searching for justice sequel? 
um, over six years, and, and I've read, you know, a lot of your reviews, and they, everyone lauded your book um, as absolutely meticulous, and, uh, you know, in terms of your research, and really, really held their interest, and they really got to know everything, so kudos for you to you as a writer. Um, Thank you. With respect to telling the story so well, uh, what, what kinds of um, new evidence had you uncovered, and what kind of um, did you get a lot of resistance between the first book to the second book, or was it was it easier in terms of access because people may have known about you? It was uh, the second book was the first book was very emotional because it was a, on a very personal level, and uh, you know remembering things as a as a child, and you know uh, going through all of that. And and I didn't really um, mention anybody except for um, my family, and but I knew certain things that had happened, but I didn't know who the person was that did it, and that was the thing. Those were the gaps that I wanted to fill. Was well, who said this to me, you know, and who said to me, well, you're lucky that it wasn't you because maybe this man was looking for you that night, walking home instead of her and saw her and picked her up instead, you know, and I always wondered who said that to me and, and, um, and a lot of difference between you, you and Kathy, Karen, um, she was 13 and I was just barely, uh, 15 and, uh, um, I turned 15 in October. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and she was murdered in November 21st, 1971. So that, that put tremendous fear in in me, and so there was a lot of things that were said and done that I just I I wanted to find out, and it was extremely it was extremely difficult, and it is uh, not for the faint um, for sure. Um, I there were times where I thought I can't do this, and mm-hmm. I tell you my sister Anne, the oldest in the family, she was the one that I confided in you know, with everything, and she was the one that supported me and just said, Karen, you can do this, you know, just take a little piece at a time. And, um, you know, so it was it was very hard, and I thought, um, you know, the first three chapters, and I'm not a long chapter writer. I don't like to read long chapters, so I tend not to write long chapters. And um, the first three chapters took me three months to write. And it, and then after that, I had to take a break because I was dealing with her autopsy, and I had to do research going through her autopsy. I didn't understand the medical terms, and I had to do meticulously go through the autopsy report and do research on what you know the scientific name was and exactly what it meant and that took a tremendous amount of time to do that so that I could relay it so that everybody else could understand it because I myself, just reading it through an autopsy report and the, the scientific view, um, didn't understand it myself. Sure. Um, Did you have certain people as go-to people, like a, a medical examiner that you respected from another, you know, in, in your travels or certain investigators mm-hmm. that we would consult with all the time? That you were directly involved? Yeah, I I didn't. I reached out to several people and um and nobody would respond. 
And so eventually, I had already gone through that process, uh, eventually to verify what I had believed um, in the autopsy report, to verify that, um, and this is another door that was open, um, and this is what will happen. Um, you, You will be surprised. I actually connected with someone in the U.K., who um, does forensics in the UK is actually a um, does a forensic program at a university there, and we connected through um, Twitter, actually, and um, and so we started to correspond. And he was the one that um, I gave some uh, information to and details to, and he helped to verify. Uh, what I had already written because, you know, I, I said details and accuracy is very, very important to me. And um, in that the, the information that I'm writing about comes from very credible people and it's verified multiple times and also comes from reports, actual reports. Mm-hmm. And um, so... And you put it in terms one. of the layperson then I'll, I'll, always so that... We wouldn't yes. stop and say, well, what does she mean? Because yes. you, you're yes, looking exactly. at it through the labor. So can you walk us through, like, okay, the first th- three chapters maybe w- with regard to you're doing the autopsy. So there's medical information. Was there um, other physical evidence that you talked about or DNA or what other kinds of Mm -hmm. things can people just not to give things away because we want people to read it, but just to kind of give us a preview of the kinds of things in, in the second book's journey that you will, you will learn about that's different from the first book. Well, it's very different because now I'm dealing with dates and names and places and, um, you know, dealing with um, trying to be extremely careful about accuracy. And so, you know, you're checking and rechecking and checking again and uh, checking spelling of names and, um, you know, finding the information from the multiple incredible credible people. And so now the first book um, doesn't deal with that. It's a very emotional on a personal level, and there's some – you know, dates in there and there, but there's not, you know, other people's names. And so in this book, um, there's there's actual names in there of people that worked on Kathy's case. Um, I had a uh, several people in law enforcement that sat down with me that uh, some had worked in, on her case in 71 and in 83 um, that were willing to sit down and really open up to me and talk to me about how difficult her case was and um, how it was politically driven, how there was multiple agencies working on her case and each dug in their heels and wouldn't share information. And he That's admitted pretty typical, that, right, Delilah? Yeah, yeah, he admitted that that was a, yeah. a problem, um, you know, and how the attorney general uh, back then uh, in 1971 uh uh, Warren Rudman uh, demanded that everything go through him first before anything was done, and he said that really held up the progress of the case. And so they were really willing to just finally let go, and because they had said that her case had bothered them uh, 
all these years and still does, that it was never solved and an arrest wasn't made and and that they were confident on who did it. And there was, you know, never had been an arrest made. And it bothered them. And, you know, one of them talks about how he drives through different areas through New Hampshire and it's like a killing field for him. And because he worked a homicide in that area, a homicide in that area. And he said, so when I drive through New Hampshire, I think, oh, yeah, so-and-so was, we found them murdered there, you know. And that's the type of, I wanted to give that view also in the second book. You know, what is. Is it chronological, what, how, Karen? It is. You know, this happened and then this happened. So it's, yeah. it's sequential. Yeah. So people mm-hmm. are getting the sense of before and at, now and in. Yes. What happened next? And that was important to me was um, I wanted the second book and the way that it happened. And, I mean, when I first started, I thought I would have never thought where it ended. But I did want a chronological uh, recording, um, especially for my family, of dates and names of when it began and when it, you know, up to current date. And someone said, well, maybe you'll write a third book if there's ever an arrest made. And I said, no, I am never writing a third book. But <laughs> I may do an amendment in right. the second book. But, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, this took a lot out of me to write this book. But it is, it was very important for me to have it in chronological order from the time that she was found, from the person. I never knew the person that found her and how she was found. You know, we had always heard stories about how she was found. And so knowing who found her and how it found and, you know, all of those things and um, very, very careful about putting it in chronological order. Good. Well, Karen, you've been able to, in writing this book, you've been able to really gather a lot of facts um, about the case and, like you say, put them in chronological order and put everything in order, which is a lot more than a lot of other people get in their cases. A lot of people Mm -hmm. don't want to know, but I think most people do in a case like this. They want to know the details. Um, So at this point in time, after going through writing two books and, and, and reliving and reliving and reliving this, what for you and your family, what does justice look like today? Well, I think for me, um, justice is what I've done for her. And especially in the second book, that I wanted to give her as much justice that I think that she probably will get here um, on earth. And um, I felt that releasing more detail about her case and names and places was a tribute to her and a search for justice. And that's why the title is Searching for Justice, because I believe in this day and age, unless there's some kind of a miracle where evidence comes forward or multiple people even, I don't even believe one person could convict this man, um, that that it's not going to happen. And so I had to make the decision, what can I do myself now to make it as much as 
the justice for her as I can, you know, and I think each of us in our family, we have our own own things that we do, you know. My sister Janet has done things. Um, my sister Anne, she's always been there, you know. So um, this was my way of trying to get out to the world uh, what happened to her and that it was such an injustice, an injustice that someone wasn't arrested for what happened to her, but also using her, the books as teaching tools for law enforcement. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. 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 Using as teaching, that's really important because I think that even though someone may not be arrested, and I, I don't give up hope on that, but but I do think that I need to work with what I can, and I think using these books, you know, having someone, you know, I have, there's a doctor in Canada that studies children that are adults now that, you know, she's doing a study on what ha- has happened to them when they've had a sibling that has died. And I was part of that study. And she's a psychologist. And she's read both books and used the book to get the insight of what a child, you know, had went through. But also in the second book, what a person can do as an adult to make a positive, um, you know, impact on society. And so her book, you know, her story has reached Canada uh, throughout the U.K., um, throughout the U.S. And so for me, leaving that legacy, because I'm not always going to be here, but there's a good possibility that people can read about her um, and and understand uh, in a scientific way or or even, um, you know, a psycholo- psychology way that uh, they that they can glean from these books and maybe learn something and make changes in the way that they do For things. For other like cases. This, and, yeah, yeah like and it is such a good legacy. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking as you're talking, and no one is going to care as much as somebody who is in the nuclear family of someone who – who you know who has been victimized like this? No one is going to be mm-hmm. as meticulous as you because it's so personal. You you could well, have hired one. You know, yeah, you know. I had one officer say to me, uh, "Did you find out um, a lot more about the case uh, than you originally knew by doing your own research?" And I said, "Absolutely, oh, a, yeah. a ton more." And she said, "That's that pop happens all the time." That mm-hmm. that the family finds out more than what the investigators investigators ever did. Look what happens when you turn over every rock, Karen. You know, and and I want to mm-hmm. say up front, not everybody in the same family copes and deals with things in the same Mm-mm. way and, and looks at things. And in fact, in a couple of weeks, we are going to do a show, and you might be interested in this, Karen, with regard to. Dealing with homicide loss, but in a in a long term sense, and what happens with the family dynamics? Because that is something mm-hmm. that I've dealt with in my own family, and it's very common that not everyone is totally on mm-hmm. board with everyone else's efforts. And as you say, it's kind of like a puzzle, and you're doing this piece, and you're you're building new mm-hmm. bridges, and you're doing wonderful things. But yet maybe somebody else, another sibling, is doing something else, and they're not doing mm-hmm. anything at all. And we have to right. give ourselves mm-hmm. permission to say, 
that's okay, and I still feel good even if so and so mm-hmm. in my family does not endorse this. Mm-hmm. This is still a really good thing for me to do because I need to do mm-hmm. this for me. You know exactly. I and it, family dynamics um, totally changes from you know as the years and decades go on, and it has in my family also, and we. I'll deal with it in different ways. You know, my, my brother doesn't say much of anything at all. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it, if that's the way he deals with that grief, then, you know, that's the way he deals with it. And I respect that. And, but for me, you know, so, you know, there was a time where we sort of like, we had to do everything as a family, you know, like we're going to search this as a family or we're going to do this as a family. But then there's a time where there's a disagreement and I think most of the time people start to go their individual way and you need to be able to respect their way of grieving and searching. And so, and I've not always had that respect in the way that I've gone, but um, you know, it's, um, but it's what I had to do. It was, it was a drive that I had to do this and, um, and, by accomplishing the second book, um, I feel that they're, they're, that the cover has been shut. Um, and I can't, it's hard to explain, but I feel like, um, I don't know, I can rest now. And mm-hmm. that it's very, so that was very important for me to go through my grief process because as a kid, I wasn't allowed to grieve because I was trying to be strong for my parents um, for other people, and so I grieved alone all the time. I would right. go. And it's a very lonely and, place, you know, isn't it? Yeah, it is, that, and you know, in the decades you do that. It's not, you know, not just the first few years, you know. And so now, if you know, I'm able. I know when I went to um, Q, the uh, you know, when I spoke at that uh, conference. That was the first time I had ever been around that many people that had been through similar um, events that I had gone through. Yes. And so going there, it was the most people I had ever spoke to. Um, There was over 300 people there. Um, But there were so many that had experienced, you know, similar what I had gone through. And for me to be around that many people um, that – understand um it was a great um and it's weird but to me it was a great blessing for me because there I was to speak for them to them about my experience but they were such a blessing to me because I realized I was absolutely not alone right and it's very healing for all of us and I know it was a great blessing to have you there at the conference, and I just want to say, you know, the the Q Center, just to give them a plug, there's so, um, you know, there's many organizations out there, and, um, but, but again, they are one of the very original organizations, and the mission is so true, and the the values are very clear, Mm -hmm. and the dedication of Monica Kaysan and all of her followers. Um, if, If you don't lose sight of the mission, and you remain true, and we each find our place in that organization, that will never steer you wrong. And unfortunately, Karen, there's always new cases that come up. So 
mm-hmm. these, you know, organizations are unfortunately are never going to go out of business and they'll never be not another book to write. And, you know, mm-hmm. we just commend you for what you're, you're doing with regard to your sister. And I can see and hear in your voice that there is this, you know, maybe you're that much closer to catching the perpetrator as a result of writing the second book. And, but from the, we've got about maybe 19 minutes or so left to the, to the show, according to our, our time frame, just to let you know. But I also wanted to talk to you with regard to the aspect of being, being an author and in the publishing world. And it's not an easy thing. Um, Delilah, um, in your knowledge of working with people such as Diane Fanning, who's a very prolific writer, have, you know, to write a sequel, it, it, there's no guarantee that books are going to be a hit or whatnot. But in, when Karen spoke, too, about being a teaching tool, I thought of Holding My Hand Through Hell with Susan Murphy Milano, that that absolutely is a, is a teaching tool as well. What, what, what thoughts do you have with regard to those things? And the other authors you work with. In the, as far as what the success of a book like this? Yeah, I'm, I'm not clear a, what your question sequel, is. Tom. Well, I'm just wondering with regard to somebody putting out a second book, and you know the fact that this is so informational, and mm-hmm. you know that, that you can use it as a teaching tool. Would it would it not be something that maybe rises above if it's just not somebody's somebody's story again because it's very valuable information yes and and i think karen will agree with me most authors that go into writing a book like this that's very very personal and Mm -hmm. they don't go into it for the success factors they go into it for uh, you know very personal reasons and that's Mm -hmm. probably why you wrote these books and as far as Using as teaching tools, absolutely. And, uh, you know, maybe Karen can speak a little bit to, about, you know, the work that she's done out there with law enforcement right. agencies and how you've been able to establish cold case units and train with these people. And all of that, again, goes back to the book, what you found out, mm-hmm. what you learned in the learning process by writing these books. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, – uh, it's very hard to get in with law enforcement. They're um, they're very protective and careful. And um, so when I was in Ohio, I had established a um, relationship with um, a couple guys from the um, Bureau of Criminal Investigations that desired that Ohio have a solid cold case unit. And that's how we got connected. And um, they really thought that Ohio uh, could benefit from a cold case unit because a lot of states what happens is they have a homicide unit and they have one or two guys on the homicide unit that will work cold cases, but only when they have time, you know. So when do they have time? Because nowadays you're dealing, I know in Arizona here, um, it seems like every day the news has someone's been murdered. Um, you know, there's been some kind of homicide. So I really believe that every state now needs to have a solid cold case unit. And um, so I do advocate that. And um, because when you think of someone who has murdered, 
um, anything else that that they might do in life, um, you know, robbery, rape, or anything like that, that's nothing. If they've murdered all that other stuff, it's nothing. And so we have a murderer that keeps walking the earth and who knows is doing what else, you know, murdered again, is raping, robbing, or whatever and stuff. So letting these unsolved cases um, continue is really a disgrace, I think, to society because, uh, you know, we in jeopardy. And I don't think enough time and effort goes into these cold cases on a permanent basis where it's a team that works them one by one. Now, in New Hampshire, when the cold case unit was formed, we knew Kathy's case might not be one of the cases that would be up front because her case is very old. It's one of the oldest in in New Hampshire. And her case is um, very difficult because a lot of evidence wasn't collected. Uh, You know, back then they weren't thinking DNA, uh, you know, so they didn't collect evidence with gloves. You know, multiple people handled evidence, you know, things like that. But in the early 80s, that's not so. You know, now we're starting to think about testing for DNA. I think a lot of the early 80 cases, um, 80s cases, that some of them, even in New Hampshire, it was a matter of just running DNA, and they were able to make an arrest. Um, so there's so many things that they can do. You can do touch DNA, where it's just cells, you know, of an individual. There's so much that is um, yeah, uh, that they can use today. But um, I think the encouragement for every state to um, have a cold case unit is uh, is very little. Um, people don't push for cold case units. And my idea, when I think when there's not a cold case unit and people permanently, you know, working on these cases full time, is that there's all these people that are walking around that have never been caught. And every time a cold case unit they are making arrest and it makes the news and it's a 1979 or 1983 case or even a 2011 case that they finally have made an arrest. You got to believe that a person who committed a crime in the eighties are now thinking and looking over their shoulder after all these years thinking that they've gotten away with it, that are they looking for me? And right. that's the pressure it puts on them. And so I think cold case units are very important. They and really so, are. We have one in Connecticut and, and Collin County, and there were three young girls that were went missing and, and murdered, and they were like 11 and 13 and 14. Mm-hmm. So very similar to your case, and and, and they do. But in, in our state as well, they have a couple of people, depending on how large the uh, – uh, the police department is that is 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 looking into it, but I think with just the volume of people who are being murdered, I think the trend has to be. Don't you think, Karen, that they're just going to have to develop these teams? And one of your reviews mm-hmm. on Amazon had said that they learned that you're just going to have to develop these, and it needs to be a team approach. So, with the mm-hmm. massive violence we've been we've been seeing, even of late. They're, they're, they're going to be forced to develop these task forces, don't you think? I would hope so. And, you know, it, doing research and especially in the second book, um, I realized how much money comes into play. 
Um, I think as a family, you know, we, we think about the murder in our family and that, you know, justice needs to be done and, you know, they need to find the person that did it and make the arrest. But there are so many other elements to um, an investigation that these uh, law enforcement officers uh, have to deal with, you know, supervisors that are saying there's, there's been no leads for a certain amount of time. You need to drop this right now and go on to something else. And so it's not that it's not active. We'll, they'll say, oh, it's an active case. Well, yes, it's an active case because it's still, you know, within a it's year open. or two years. Right. It's open. But they're not, they're not actively going after, you know, and looking for information. At that point, they start to hope that someone's going to come with them come to them with information. And so, you know, money really makes a big difference in everything, you know. Uh, we it know does. that as a society. Um, if they don't have the money, I mean, fighting for the cold case unit in New Hampshire, um, all the individuals that were doing that, that was one of, you know, once the the um, bill was drawn and um, the law was passed and signed by Governor Lynch, uh, that there would be a cold case unit. Now the problem was where were we going to find money, you know, to support a cold case unit. But the fact is to support a cold case unit in New Hampshire, um, three men, uh, a, a part-time, uh, you know, researcher and also a, you know, uh, an assistant attorney general that would, would help them to support them for one year would be the cost of buying a plow, a snow plow. And so when you look at that, um, you know, so a state's going to buy a brand-new snowplow, but they don't have the money to support a cold case unit. You know, it, there's just so many mm-hmm. things. And the money factor is, is, a, is huge. And I do believe the money factor played in Kathy's investigation, especially in 1983 when they were ready to go forward with an indictment, you know, that they did not want to spend the money on a trial Unless they wanted was, to win, you know, right. they wanted yeah. to win. They wanted it to be a slam dunk. And so, um, you know, I believe money and politics played a role in that, too. So and it families, still does. It still does. It still I mean, does. Always We're does, fighting this all the time, you know. Let's segue mm-hmm. a little bit into um, into uh, another venture that both you and I are involved with. Would you like to talk about Greek Diaries? Yeah, um, and I, the other book that you're doing. Yes, um, you know, one of the I'm always open, and I have to be careful because I'm a yes person, and I can stretch myself a little too thin. And I Me think too. you guys, you guys understand that. But I think it's the passion of the work we do, you know, and that drives us. And sometimes we need to know when to walk away. And um, I know writing the the sequel. I I did have to tell myself, Karen, you need to take a break. You know, this is really trying on you. You need to take a break. And I would take, uh, you know, several weeks off or a couple weeks off or whatever. But, you know, when someone approaches me about um, the grief diaries and Donna, you approached me about doing a grief diaries, um, I just thought that that was such a worthy cause because I have never heard of anyone ever doing such a thing. And so, you know, Linda Fell, who puts these together, um, she's done numerous uh, diaries about grief, you know, losing a husband, losing a child. Yeah, it's just amazing. And I wish I had 
the one that we just recently worked on, and uh, it was it's called Greek Diaries: Surviving Loss by Homicide. And there were numerous uh, uh, writers that um, you know gave their stories about what happened to them, and uh, I think reading about those things, just like me going to Q and realizing I'm not alone that reading the stories of these people that have gone through this and actually survived and and maybe um, used it later on in life when they could in a positive way, reading these stories is important for someone who is just starting out um, grieving because of a homicide. And yeah. um, that, that that it gives them hope, you know, because I know as a kid, you know, I write about it in the book, that I just wanted to die. I, it, it was so painful that I just wanted to die. And I know my parents felt the same way and others in the family. You know, it's just you just want the pain to stop. But that grieving will change. It won't always, always be that way every single day for every minute of every day. And Eventually, and it's not that we don't grieve because there's still times where something will hit me, you know, working on the book. Um, but I do find strength from that too. But also, you know, maybe a smell or a song or whatever, and you just break down and cry, and you grieve them. And so you do grieve all the all the days of your life, but maybe not in the same way and a as when a it first way. happened. And, and so, a yeah, way. And it's good. It's good. You know, I realize. Because for me, when my grandmother came out and told me, you stop crying right now, you're upsetting your mother. And I had just found out that Kathy had been murdered. And I sucked it up. And I sucked it up for the rest of the time. And so that's how I dealt with it. And so now I realize that if I can let it go, I let it go. You know, if something affects me, uh, you know, something that reminds me of her and I have to break down and cry and I'm not ashamed to do that. And so, you know, doing this surviving loss by homicide and, you know, it's, you know, you can get all the grief diaries on Amazon. um, I think that was a very worthy cause to participate in. And I'm, I'm very glad that Donna, that you asked me to do that. And, um, well, so, my pleasure. And, and I think you're adding to the tapestry, and we're very excited about introducing these. And Linda, she has upwards of, you know, like now 30 books in the series or whatnot on specific topics of grieving. And mm-hmm. this was the hardest one because a lot of people cannot bring themselves to write about homicide. So it took a long mm-hmm. time in the making, and we're very proud of it. But, you know, before we, we go, we still have a couple of minutes here. I understand that you're you're embarking on another venture, which is close to my heart because I have an unpublished children's story. You're, you're writing a children's book as well, aren't you? I am. I, I have a children's book right now that I, I've written, and I'm actually going through the editing process. And then um, it's based What's on that about? My, it's based on my three grandsons. It's called um, uh, The Kirby Boys Adventure, uh, Searching for the Lost Key. So it's staying in the mystery uh, realm, and um, it's very sweet, and uh, it's been fun to write because I've brought out their personalities and how they joke and pick on each other, but 
but love each other as brothers. And then, you know, there's there's some uh, moral um, encounters in there because they have a little old lady that's neighbor that they think is creepy, um, but she's just a lovely woman when they finally get to know her and why she watches them through the window. And uh, so it's it's been a lot of fun. And then I have... Um, an illustrator that is in my grandson's family. Uh, their dad um, has a uh, an aunt that uh, is a um, painter and an illustrator, and she is doing the illustrations for me, and it's just been awesome. Um, oh. She's gone through each chapter, and she's she's drawn the the, uh, the, the pictures, and then she's actually um, putting all the um, its watercolors. So she's putting all the colors to it, and once she puts the colors to it, you know, she, I mean, we go back and forth, you know, should I add this or whatever, and then she puts the colors to it, and the pictures just come alive. And they come alive. So when is that due for uh, publication in the in well, sometime hoping, this year? Yeah, I'm hoping, um, I'm hoping by Christmas, but uh-huh. um, it's, it's, you know how it is, it's, you know, we're trying to get it all together and right. and I'm hoping to get it printed, um, you know, get it printed and accepted for publication. And um, so I'm hoping for that. But if not, um, it will definitely be, be in the beginning of 2017. But it has just been a joy and I've sat and there and laughed. And it's a nice and, from Homicide, oh, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Tell us, tell us, um, where we can contact you, where we can get any or all of your books. So if people are interested, they can, they can get it. And actually, would you like to have reviews as well? Silly yeah, it's, um, yeah, you can um, get my books. If you wanted signed copies, you can go to www.karenbowden.com. And can you spell your last will, name for them, please? It's uh, B E A U. D as in dog, I-N. And those, that will go to my website so you can get signed copies. And then, of course, um, the, all of the books are on Amazon. You can get them through Barnes & Noble. If they don't have them, uh, in the books can order them for you. Um, but you can get them through Amazon, um, uh, any of those um, you know, venues, and then, of course, through my publishers, Kate Publishing, you can go directly through them um, also. Uh, they have both books. And then and I do... Reef Diaries as well. You can read your your story there. Yes, yes, and you can get that um, on Amazon. I'm hoping to order some books because I do have... Um, I want to order some of those books because I do have a book signing, uh, two book signings in New Hampshire at the end of August. Wonderful. And... Um, yeah, I'm working on it one, too. Yeah, one of it, one of them is uh, downtown um, at Gibson's Bookstore in Concord, and um, and then the other one is is um, in Franklin, where the murder actually happened. It would be at the Franklin Library, and oh, wow. all the information for those um, book signings um, is on my website. And okay. then um, I hope to get some of the Greek diaries, uh, some of the books to take with me on those two book signings, too. Well, that would be great, killing a few birds with one stone and, and, and celebrating how prolific you are and talented. So, uh, again, we, we have to, unfortunately, wind up a very fast-paced hour, Karen. 
Um, it's been a pleasure. Delilah, would you like to um, contribute some parting comments here before we have to wind up? Well, definitely. I'd like to thank Karen for taking time yeah. out of her day to come back and, right. um, you know, speak on on this subject. And I'm hoping that your books do great things for other people. Thank you. And I, my thought, my just want to leave the thought of, um, you know, don't give up. Don't give yes, up. That universal message. Don't yes. give up. And. You you are you know you you are an inspiration and thank you so much for taking the time enjoy Flagstaff today and your hike thank you and so we we will be winding up this hour and please be sure to come back next next time August sixth we have another uh, very interesting guest so thank you again Karen thank you Delilah and we'll see you next week on Shattered Lives Radio Inside Lives. <laughs>